Hey, welcome to the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm your host, Howie Jacobson. Quick reminder that the new book is out. You Can Change Other People, The Four Steps to Help Your Colleagues, Employees, Even Family Up Their Game. This is a business book, but it's also a personal book. I wrote it from my experience as a coach, helping people change entrenched self-sabotaging behaviors. And I put all my knowledge and all of Peter Bregman, my co-author's knowledge, into a book to help you do the same thing with the people that you care about in your life. So it's available right now. It is for sale wherever books are sold. You know, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, bookstore.org, your local independent bookshop, my personal preference if you can do that. And I would love for you to get a copy. That is one amazing way to support me is to help the sales of the book and to read it and implement it. And if you like, go on Amazon or somewhere and leave a review. All right, so let's get to today's episode. All right, let's get to today's show. So today's a light, fun, relaxing episode with two uh, longtime friends and po prior podcast guests, Glenn Merzer, who is the author of the new book, Own Your Health. And he's joined by Chef AJ, who provided the recipes. And I would say it's a good thing that they didn't switch roles. Um, and the book is basically there's nothing new here in terms of science, nothing cutting edge, um, but it's a really interesting book for two reasons. One, one is it's really funny. So Glenn was a comedian, a, a TV comedy writer, and he brings all his skills to bear telling hilarious stories that really point out the ridiculousness of the fact that there is still a pseudo debate about what is the healthiest way to eat. So to give you an example, in the um, introduction, he says, you know, before you take any of the advice in this book, check with your plumber, um, pointing out that plumbers and doctors receive roughly the same amount of nutritional education um, as, as part of their professional training. So um, he tells a story about um, his mother finally firing her doctor because she had to side with her husband because she doesn't want to divorce him because they just got new furniture and lots of sort of fun, light, interesting, memorable stories that also contain these truths because um, Glenn is very good at seeing the obvious and pointing it out in in ways that are easily digestible. So I think maybe even some of your uh, doubting friends might be able to swallow this particular pill. The other thing is that Glenn is really fed up with the fact that, that there is still a supposed debate about the merits of different ways of eating when whole food plant based is the only one that's been proven to reverse a whole bunch of diseases. And yes, you know, we can argue about do you have to be 100 percent or can it be 80 or 90? But there's no question that the general pattern is not towards keto or paleo or God forbid carnivore. Uh, so, you know, while the whole food plant based diet is um, is the diet elect and everyone's getting ready for the transition, there's still um, a bunch of, uh, of hacks, propagandists, blowhards and ignoramuses who are uh, holding uh, press conferences in the Four Seasons total landscaping parking lot, arguing for other ways of eating. You know, the debate is over. Let's get past it. We know the answer. Let's move on. So um, I talked to them about um, the book itself, about what it's like to work together, about how they uh, how Chef AJ thinks about creating recipes for this book versus that book. And we just have some some laughs and tell some stories. So I hope you enjoy these two wonderful souls. And without further ado, Glenn Merther and Chef AJ, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thank, Thank you, you, Howie. Good to be thank here. You, thank you, Howard. It's, it's one of my very favorite podcasts. Oh, thanks. Actually, you, you got you to gotta call me Howie, too, because I, I said Glenn could. So, uh, okay, I call you Howie. I've, I've yeah. moved up in the world that I can call you Howie yeah. now. Well, I figured since you met me through Colin, and Colin's always called me Howie, I thought you were you're, you're grandmothered in. 
<laughs> All right. I won't call you Dr. Jacobson. Yeah. <laughs> well, that, that works too. Um, so you guys have a book that just came out. Yes. Right? yes double, double fisted, uh, own your health. And so I've talked to each of you on the podcast before separately. Um, really how, how did you guys meet and start collaborating? How did we meet AJ? You know, Glenn, I think we met again. I'm going to hold it up too. I think we met through mm -hmm. a mutual friend, Michelle Wolf, if I'm not mistaken at a game party. Could that be possible at her house? No, in I think I, I think well, I knew you before that. I think maybe it was at a veg source convention. Could be. I, but, well, what I liked about Glenn, though, is he's funny. He, he, he has a very a, kind of a, like, he has, it kind of reminds me of Bob Newhart, his sense of humor. It's, it's, it's kind of subtle. And, it, and, and Goldhammer, Dr. Goldhammer is the same thing. Like, you don't always know when they're joking. But I liked his mind, and I, he's very clever. And I, we met, I, I remember when I asked him to help me with my first book, we were, I think that was at a game party. And he was very, very funny playing games. And when I needed help... I asked him, and uh, he's, uh -huh. he's a good collaborator. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, you both have Hollywood comedic credentials, right, in, in the business. Um, and you, you both wield those credentials in your lives as, as uh, vegan, plant-based health advocates as well. Um, what's, what's the, let's, let's talk about that for a minute. Like, cause the book is like, there's nothing groundbreaking. You didn't do any new studies for it. I, but, I did not. But it's funny as hell. Right. Thank you. I, I, I Thank have some, I have some notes in there about your, your, your mother basically fired her doctor because she had gotten new furniture. Right. And it was cheap. It was cheaper than divorce. Well, right. I, we, well, she, she disobeyed the doctor who had, um, the doctor had said she needed an emergency angioplasty to save her life. And my father was in the room with her and my father said, you do that and I'll divorce you. He's just trying to make money, which was not a very politically correct thing to say. So the doctor got furious at my father and said to my mother, who are you going to listen to him or me? He's not a doctor. I'm telling you, you need to do this to save your life. And my father said, we'll get divorced. And my mother said, well, I don't know what to do, but I, I couldn't afford to get divorced emotionally. We just got new furniture. Yeah. So she passed on the angioplasty. The doctor fired her. I the see. doctor took the attitude, you're not going to do what I say. I don't want to ever see you again. Mm. So she got fired by her doctor. And she lived for another 30 years or so without any uh -huh. cardiac event because I started doing her food shopping. Okay. See, like we, we, have, we have all the Esselstyn studies and we have, you know, all this stuff. But it's like, also it's like we, love, we love the science and we love the facts and we love the data and the, and the evidence. But so a story like that can actually be far more powerful in in spreading the message and in doing it in a, in a very lighthearted way with with a smile yeah um, well i think the unfair knack, knock on vegans and anthony bourdain who i write a little bit about in the book anthony bourdain used to say things like this he would say vegans are like the hezbollah we're militants mm -hmm. so this this image that our opponents have tried to give us that, you know, we're humor, humorless militants who are moralizing all the time about veganism. Mm -hmm. I have tried never to moralize about it. I, I have always tried to emphasize the health arguments and the environmental arguments and um, to, you know, let obviously people make their own decisions. Um, but it all goes down easier with some humor. So, um you know, that's my approach. Yeah, yeah well, it reminds me of the same knock that feminists get, right? Right. That, right. You know, it's, just, it's the same tactic. And I don't know if you, get, you guys know Melanie Joy. Right. Yeah. And, and her work on, like, how, how, how people seek to sort of unnormalize. And, you know, like, we're, we're some sort of infection in the system, right? Because if we're right, then a lot of things are wrong. And yeah. it's, it's almost like the immune system of any system has to try to root out 
you know, bugs like us that are going to bring it crashing yeah. down if, if, if it uh, comes along. So, AJ, when you, you're working on, was this your first book that you turned to Glenn for help with? No, actually, we were, in 2010, I wrote a book called Unprocessed, and he, mm-hmm. he, he fixed it. He, he, he unwrote it, I say, because I, I, I'm a better talker than a writer. I, I'm not a writer. I really, it's not something I ever wanted to do. But I talk pretty good, and I give a lot of lectures. But if I hadn't gone to Glenn, my, all my books would probably be five 800 pages because I just keep talking. And so what he did, mm-hmm. he's much more than an editor. He's a co-writer. But but he, he's very good at taking this and making it this and making mm-hmm. it very readable, digestible. And like you say, all the humor in my book, which there was really a funny thing in the process about kosher salami being blessed, but just as deadly. All, all, the, all mm-hmm. that came from him. So he, he really mm-hmm. is right. very good at, at making yeah. things funny. Well, so, let me just say, though, that AJ wrote a good book in Unprocessed and she wrote a good book in Secrets to Ultimate Weight Loss. It's just that they were, in both cases, they were more than one book. And I kind of had, I was like a sculptor trying to hone them down into one book. So, you know, she, maybe she couldn't have done it without me, but I certainly couldn't have done it without her. They were her, her ideas and her thoughts. Right. Oh, I want to say like for, for you, AJ, so, um, having something, you know, sort of edited in a very sort of straight laced, uh, um, efficient manner. Like lots of people could do that. Why were you drawn to a comedy writer? Like, what did you want, you know, to add it or not lost? Yeah. Well, the thing is, is I, I like humor too. And when I teach, I always try to be as funny as possible. And when I'm teaching calorie density, it's not as easy when you're doing scientific things, but definitely when I'm doing cooking presentations, because I find that when there's humor, people pay attention more because as as wonderful as our scientific lectures are, a lot of times they're boring to lay people. And so if you can pepper it in my case with, with, I do, I do musical parodies, people actually pay attention. And I think they have better retention and learning when things are funny because you tend to remember that, you know, think about like your favorite movies. Like I think about like the pink Panther, all I, I, there's just certain things I remember like the, like when he said, does your dog bite? And the guy goes, no. And the dog bite him. He goes, I thought you said your dog did not bite. Well, that's not my dog. You know, I, I mean, I saw that probably 40 years ago. I still remember it, you know? Mm -hmm. Right. So, yeah. So it's a way to, um, you know, to to, uh, SOS free sugarcoat information. Yeah. He said something once about a Colonel Mustard being both a, a, both a condiment and a, and a game piece. And, and he just, his mind was very similar to mine. I just thought it would be a good pair. And, and it was, I mean, this is our third time and who knows, who knows what, who knows what next come from the team of Chef AJ and Glenn Merzer. So what was Glenn, when you started working on this book, which yeah. is a, a sort of a narrative memoir Right. Like you, like if I didn't know it was about health, I would say, "Oh, this is just a funny book about a guy's life and his family and all the meshigas and things that go on." Um, Like, what was what did you feel was missing in the world that this filled? Good question. Uh, I would say that I, I was trying to do something that isn't out there in the vegan literature. We've all read the vegan literature, and there are great books you know, by T. Colin Campbell, by uh, Michael Greger, by John McDougall, that make the scientific case. Um, and A.J.'s books, Unprocessed and Secrets to Ultimate Weight Loss, begin with her personal stories. Um, and, and I thought she did a great job on, that, on those and with that approach. So I wanted to tell my personal story But then I also wanted to make a contribution, in a sense, I hope I have, to the literature in that, not that I've done a new scientific study, of course, but I wanted to make it perfectly clear and make the case that there really isn't a serious scientific debate between those of us who advocate the plant-based diet and those who advocate eating meat. You know, the Atkins diet, the zone diet, the keto diet, all that nonsense. It's always presented as if nutrition is a contentious field and there's some good arguments on this side and some good arguments on that side. I don't think so. I think it's closer to the global warming debate 
where you have 99.99% of scientists saying, yes, there is human-made global warming, and you have 0.01% of kooks saying there isn't. It's the same thing. All the scientific evidence is on the same side. Is there one study out there that, that chicken is good for your heart? Is there one study out there that roast beef is good for your liver? Is there one study out there that pork is good for anything? No, because they're not good for you. So, we, you know, there's countless studies about the health benefits of fruit, vegetables, fiber, if meat was good for you, wouldn't there be one study somewhere that it's good for you? So how do they make it seem contentious? How do they do that? Well, part of it is that the culture, the media, people in general, want it, want it to seem contentious. They want there to be a debate because they're already eating meat and they're already eating dairy. And they want to hear, as uh, I think it's Dr. John McDougall's phrase, they want to hear some good news about their bad habits. Uh Um, But the other part of it is that the weight loss side of it confuses people because it is possible to lose weight on a ketogenic diet. It is possible to lose weight probably on an ice cream diet. As long as you don't eat too much ice cream, you'll lose weight eating nothing but ice cream, you know, but that's not healthy. You're not going to live long doing that. So um, it's not only about weight loss, it's about health. And there is no data that any animal foods are anti-carcinogenic. There is no data that any of them have any, any animal foods increase longevity, increase health, reduce diabetes. There are occasional studies that people lose weight on a ketogenic diet, and there are various reasons for that, but you could lose just as much weight more healthfully if you follow AJ's YouTube videos, you know, and and eat the diet that all three of us propose. Right. Although I want to I want to push back against that a little bit because there are plenty of books that make that case, but you went about it differently. So I, you know, I have a couple of notes about like phrases that really jumped out at me as, as being you know like clever and a little more convincing. Like like the disclaimer: con, uh, consult your plumber before, right? Like instead, like you said, you have to write consult your doctor before. Um, doing any of the things in this book. And, you, and then you say, I might as well have written consult your plumber because they know just as much about nutrition. Like that, that's different than, like, I think you, you have maybe a little, you're like the vice presidential debate. You get to say, you know, in, in a normal universe, the right, the vice presidential candidates get to be meaner to each other or like more cutting. Like you, right. you, you get to say things that a lot of doctors maybe don't get to say or think about saying. Well, look, doctors are going to have a, uh, in general, and there are some we can think of who have a little more edge than others, but in general, doctors are going to make modest, um, uh, modest, friendly kinds of, they're going to take a modest, friendly kind of approach, and they're not going to say the other side is full of it. They're going to say, well, examine the evidence. Here's the evidence I'm presenting. I don't think you'll find as persuasive evidence on the other side. And that's the scientific tone, and I wouldn't argue that it should be otherwise. Um, but I'm, I'm not one of them. <laughs> I'm, an, I'm an independent writer, and uh, I, I can choose my own tone. Um, and I just think it's, it's – I just think – the other side has the side that's advocating meat eating is, is making a very silly case. Uh, you know, typically they, they, they fall into the same trope where they um, compare their diet, let's say a ketogenic diet against the standard American diet. So they take people off sugar and off soda and awful lot of things that are in the standard American diet. And then they say, see, we're doing better than those low fat people. Well, those low fat people aren't low fat people. They're not people who are eating a, a, a truly low fat vegan diet. 
plant-based diet. There are people who are eating the standard American diet, maybe with some added sugar. <laughs> so they set up a straw man, they defeat the straw man, and then they say, see, the ketogenic diet works. But they never, never would risk doing a study against people who eat the way we eat because they'll, they'll get creamed, especially in terms of health metrics. You know, weight loss, maybe for a short period of time, could be equivalent. But over long term, the health benefits of our diet, you know, overwhelm a diet of meat and dairy. So, Shaveja, I got a question for you, and I want to frame it in terms of like, I've always wondered the, about the process of composing movie music. Like the movie's made and then someone has to say, okay, now I have to figure out like what fits the mood, what songs do I want to add in, what sound effects. And I'm wondering for you, if you, like, do you get the manuscript from Glenn and then say, okay, here's my latest 75 recipes, let's shove them in? Or do you think about like fitting the recipes, creating recipes that reflect or enhance or, or talk about the, you know, in some way, interact with the book itself? How, how, how did you go about thinking about contributing recipes? Well, it was a little of both because I had already had started writing some new recipes anyway, just because it's something I like to do is create recipes. But it wasn't that hard, actually, because we, like Glenn said, we eat pretty much the same way. Glenn has never had weight problems or suffered with any kind of food addiction, so he can be a little bit more liberal and maybe have you know a little salt in food and maybe have a little bread. But for the most part, we eat the same diet. So to create recipes within that framework that he wanted to was just the way I eat. So, you know, I, it's, it wasn't that hard, but no, it wasn't like, okay, now I got it. Cause if I had to think of like 75, I think there were 81, I go, that would have been really hard. There are chefs that can do that, but as luck would have it, I was already starting that process. And the hard part was, is trying to balance it. In other words, you know, you, you don't want to, if you have a book, unless it's a dessert book, you don't want to have just all desserts or all sauces. And I, I tend to kind of go heavy in certain areas of the areas that I prefer to eat and to try to, you know, try to make it balance and have some appetizers and some beverages. That for me was the hardest part because I, I don't want to say I'm a one trick pony, but I'm really good at certain categories like sauces, like desserts. And I forget people out there need entrees, even though I'm willing to eat sweet potatoes and broccoli. So that that was probably the more challenging part is to, is to balance the categories. I would love to see a cookbook from you where there's like a hundred pages of entrees and every page is the same. <laughs> I thought about that. Well, actually, you know, I, I, I like eating the same thing over and over. And you know, I, you know, Howard, it's very interesting. Sorry, Howie, that, that people, when they come <laughs> to the vegan diet, they think, oh, you know, there, there's no variety. And I think that if people would really think about their diet before they attempt a plant-based diet, they'd realize the variety, it, it's not that the variety changes. You know what I'm saying? You basically remove the animal food, but I don't think people eat as much variety as they claim. I don't, I, have you met the person that eats 30 different breakfasts every month and 30 Nobody. different lunches? No, nobody I know who eats a standard American diet touts the variety. They don't go, oh, this is such a varied diet, <laughs> right? In the, same, you know, in the same way that people who smoke cigarettes don't say, gosh, I've, I, I smoke so many different brands, <laughs> right? That's not the function of an addictive diet, Oh, right? that's hilarious. Right, because you, wa you want the predictability of, okay, I feel bad. I'm going to eat a cheeseburger. It's going to raise my mood for about 10 minutes until it starts kicking in, right? Variety only becomes an issue when you're not eating to satisfy other needs. Yeah, it's just, it's just so interesting to me because I, 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 when I think about when I weighed, you know, 60, 70 pounds more, I, I still ate the same thing. It wasn't healthy, but I had a Coke Slurpee every day for breakfast. I didn't have a Dr. Pepper Slurpee one day or a root beer Slurpee. I mean, I, I, you find the things you like and you repeat them. And it's the same thing with the plant-based diet. And I tend to eat very simply because it, I think it's cheaper. It takes less time. And I actually enjoy it. When I like something, I want to eat it every day. And that's how I feel about Hanny uh -huh. Yams roasted with broccoli and you know, but, but I understand yeah. that people want new recipes. And, and I find that, you know, I, I almost feel like if no 
more vegan recipes were created from today forward, there'd still be enough already. I mean, Robin Robertson has a book, a thousand and one. How many recipes do we need? But people, people seem to like that. And I'll keep doing it when I'm, when I'm inspired. But as somebody that, that, you know, as a food addict in recovery, I don't like the process of testing recipes because then I got to be testing food over and over when I'm not even hungry. And so I'm glad, I'm glad the book's over. The other problem is, is, uh, you know, Glenn, uh, this book almost never came out because every day I call, wait a minute, I got another one. I got, and there's like, there's probably like five recipes that didn't make it in the book because they just weren't done in time. So we'll, I'll shoot a YouTube video for those. Oh, how, about, how about if I write a haiku and we do five recipes? Well, we could do something. Really short book. Because I came up with a southwestern, a creamy southwestern ranch since the book came out. And I came up with a variation of the lemon poppy seed dressing. So, you know, just. Mm -hmm. Uh, here's here's my idea. You set, send Glenn the recipes, and you write like a one-page O. Henry short story for each one. Yeah. Okay. Fe features that recipe. I'm so good at giving work to other people. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So I don't know the vegan way to to call something a red herring, um, but I feel like when you're talking about variety, I really feel like it's a red herring for people approaching it from a perspective of deprivation. Right. Like it's just like, OK, so now, like if I'm coming into this thinking I have to suffer now for the animals, for the environment, for my health, I have to give up this stuff for some greater good. Then I'm going to think, like, how can I m mitigate the suffering? I know I'll eat 30 different meals a week and maybe that'll make up for it. When in fact, like, yeah, it's fun to cook new things. It's fun to be in the kitchen. But like God, with the, the way the, the pros you put around it, like there's in addition to the pros, there's like a spirit of I'm living my best life here. This is this is more fun than, you know, absolutely. And, and I, I hope if there are people out there who are still eating meat, I hope that you'll consider just join the team. We're, you know, we're a, uh, we're a healthier team to be on. And when I think of all the problems that are caused by the animal-based diet. I mean, it's an endless list. We've got a pandemic now. I can't go to the grocery store without putting my mask on. It's terrible. It's depressing. Uh, we can't go to the Broadway theater. We, when's, it, when's, when's life going to come back? Well, why do we have a pandemic? Does anyone remember the zucchini pandemic of 1848? No, there was no zucchini pandemic. The pandemics are always caused by chickens, pigs, bats. I think this time they think pangolin. It's always animal-based foods. The, the, the viruses come from concentrated populations of animals. So, and, and I'm reading uh, Dr. Michael Greger's book now about pandemics. There's a chance the next one could be much worse. And it's always coming from animal-based foods. So we have to deal with a pandemic that comes from animals. We have to deal with global warming, the leading cause of which may well be animal agriculture. We have to deal with water pollution that comes from animals. Once in a while you hear on the news of a problem that's caused by lettuce. What is that? You'll hear once every year or two, oh, romaine lettuce has E. coli. And you think, oh, finally, there's a problem caused by vegetables. Well, no, E. coli comes from the colon of an animal. So when the lettuce is causing problems, it's because there's a cow or a pig farm upstream. So all the problems are caused by, uh, by uh, animal agriculture. And I tend to think that those ones I could prove and of course, heart disease and, and, and cancer and all, the, all our health problems, largely the result of animal, eating animals. So those ones we could prove. Then there are some others that I can't prove, but I just happen to believe. For example, violence. You know, we, we have a violent world. Has anyone ever walked in a city and said, oh, my God, there's a gang of vegans coming. Look in there. Look. Yeah, that gang in their faux leather jackets. I tend to think that if people go on a plant-based diet, people would be less violent. I tend to think that if people go on a plant-based diet, there would be less drug addiction.
because I don't, as I mentioned in the book, I don't know anyone on a, on a low-fat vegan diet and heroin. Uh, do you, Howie, have you ever met anyone on a low-fat vegan diet and heroin? Um, no, but what, what, I, what I have found in the last couple of months to my, to my great distress is vegans who are espousing like QAnon theories and-, and have, Really? Yeah, there's, there's, there's actually a, you know, a movement in sort of the new age and, and alternative health and wellness and you know, anti-vaccine. I'm actually starting, I'm, I'm starting to wonder, because I used to think if everyone goes vegan, it's, they're basically um, like freeing themselves from this industrial mindset that's, that's so violent and harmful and, and exploitative. Um, I'm actually quite, quite concerned about a lot of uh, vegan and plant-based nutcases springing up, and uh, it makes well, me, uh, it makes me very sad. Apparently, it isn't a cure. Apparently, it isn't a cure for insanity. So, I, no, <laughs> there's that. But, uh, but I do think that less people would be uh, would 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 get addicted to drugs if they if you know children were taught eat plants; it's healthy for you. You know, go on mm -hmm. this diet so you don't develop heart disease when you get older. I think less yeah. kids would be likely to then start smoking cigarettes and uh, shooting mm. up. Well, you know, it's interesting because I think, and, you know, AJ, your history of food addiction, I think, is, gonna, is very informative here. It's that there's, it, you know, and, you know, you guys know Adam Sud? Mm -hmm. um, so he's, you know, plant-based addict. And he's been working a lot with plant-based treatment for addictions. He had, he had an, Adder, an Adderall addiction, so he works with addicts. Um, and, you know, he put out a, an Instagram like that I loved. He says, there's no gateway drugs, there's gateway pain. Hmm. And so what do we do? Like, we don't give our kids, I mean, we do give them, you know, Ritalin and Adderall and all those things. But to, as a society, like when I was sad, what did I get? Chocolate. Right, I hurt myself. I someone hurt my feelings. I skinned my knee. I got chocolate. So, the, it wasn't that the food was like the direct gateway to you know pot and heroin and and all these other things, but that it was a way for me to learn how to self medicate without actually facing the issue. And I think so, like, if, if we could get kids to be whole food plant-based and we weren't constantly making them feel better with food, feel better emotionally, then I think there'd be the space, there'd be the need to address children's emotional growth in ways, in ways that are empowering and fruitful and, and can, be, can be done endogenously without having to reach for, for something. And AJ, I'm curious about, you know, for your perspective on that as a, a food addict. Yeah, well, I think part of it really honestly comes down to calorie density and all the emotional things notwithstanding. If you think about it, if we were lived in a different time in human history or a different part of the world where lots of animal products weren't available three times a day and there were no processed foods like like in Uganda, for example, where I actually know somebody who moved here from there. He's 29 years old and he basically eats like me, even though he's not vegan, because they didn't have access to dairy and animal products three times a day and they didn't have any processed food. The thing is, is, you know, from the book, The Pleasure Trap, one of the things I've learned is that we are hardwired to seek the most concentrated source of calories in our environment, regardless of any emotional state. That's just human nature. Our ancestors had to do that for survival, but now all the calories are concentrated, right? These aren't little treats anymore. Like when I was little and you got this much Coke at a birthday party, now it's 256 ounces, right? So, so if you like Coke, you know, 256 ounces are going to bang on your dopamine receptors way more than that little six ounces we got in the birthday party. So part of it is just that we all live in a 7-Eleven now. And if our brain has not adapted from the stone age to always prefer the most concentrated source of calories, that's what we're going to do. And that's all that's available. And I think when you were saying about how when people say, oh, the, the vegan diet, you know, there's no variety. I think what people suffer when they go from a, a highly processed diet with animal products and processed food, which I'm told Americans, most Americans eat something like 92% of their calories from to a whole food diet with fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, and maybe nuts and seeds, that average calorie density is much lower. And if it's true that the more concentrated the source of calories, the more dopamine is released, which is what makes you feel good. Now, the suffering is, I think, with more withdrawal than anything else. You know what I mean? Because they're not 
they're not artificially stimulating the dopamine in the brain eating so much of these high calorie, high, you know, high fat foods. But I, I do think that, you know, nobody addresses the emotional issues in our country very well for any age. You know, it's it's so so I think it's multifactorial. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, and I, I have become in the last couple of years, I started thinking that the pleasure trap, while it's been very helpful for me, is a little over deterministic around behavior. You know, I've been reading about, you know, about Rat Park, uh, where they, you know, a lot of the studies um, on sort of the, the, you know, dopamine and like rats pressing levers to, you know, they will give, give up their families, they'll stop eating to get the, the, the cocaine hit and the pleasure centers of the brain. Those were all done, you know, like we're vegans, we're not really into animal experiments, right? Mm -hmm. There's a reason we're not into animal experiments. It's because the animals are treated badly in animal experiments. So there was another animal experiment that was the opposite of animal experiments. It was called Rat Park. And it was the rats were just like, basically almost free range. They were sort of observed, but they got food when they wanted. They had playmates, they had toys, they had sex, they had, you know, grueling. And in the same, they were given the same opportunity to overdose and they didn't, right? So I think you're right, it's multifactorial. There is this, this sort of caloric imperative, but normal humans override it unless they're in a really fucked up environment. And I think, Glenn, what you're saying is, like, we don't know which came first, but a meat-eating society in which there is this incredible hidden exploitation of billions of creatures, which pollutes our groundwater, which is destroying our climate, uh, right, which, which leads to incredible social injustice, that it's almost impossible to not feel the need to soothe yourself with, with, with dopamine producing crack of one kind or another, that they, they kind of go together. What I know, about- I, I just, I find myself wishing there was a rat park in my neighborhood. It sounds great. <laughs> okay, but I'm gonna say this, what about a cruise ship? I've been on many of the holistic holiday at sea cruises and other cruises, and people are, mm-hmm. are in a joyous state right then. It's almost like the equivalent of the rat park. They can do whatever they want and they still overfeed. Yeah, well, because humans are more complicated and we can bring our trauma with us, right? I, you know, I, I can walk around like, what's the, you know, the character, uh, like, who's, who, it's always raining on one person. I don't know if that's like a, a Peanuts character, but like the, the rain cloud just follows them around. Like humans can do that, right? So we can, we can get traumatized and no matter where we are, we're still in a, a fight or flight uh, or scarcity mindset. I think, yeah, I think, I think all of these things can, can um, contribute to the argument. Um, Glenn, what was your hope in writing this book? What, in your wildest dreams, what would you like the world to do as, in response? I'd say in, in my wildest dreams, what I would like this book to be known for is to begin to end the debate. The idea that there's a serious debate between eating animal, an animal-based diet and a plant-based diet. I, uh, the, the mocking tone that you uh, referenced in the book is because the other side's arguments are so silly. And I mock the other side's arguments in the book. So I would like this book to end the debate, in a sense, and for people to, after reading this book, say, you know what? There are kooks out there who advocate nutty stuff, but it's not serious. The only serious uh, tension there really is, is between science and culture, not between science and science, because all the science is on our side. The tension is between science and culture, because we live in a culture in which people grill burgers and have hot dogs at the ballpark and have Thanksgiving turkey. And so that's the real tough challenge to change the culture. You know, a- Anthony Bourdain used to have his show, uh, what was it called on TV? Parts Unknown, is that what it was called? Um, and um, he would celebrate culture. He would go around the world and eat what people were eating all over the world. And of course, it tended to be meat. Um, 
And I, th I think it's a, it's a difficult, uh, it's a difficult issue to navigate. How do we celebrate culture? All of us want to in general celebrate culture while at the same time saying, you know what, that part of your culture where you eat, where you slaughter pigs and eat them or slaughter cows and turn them into hamburger, that's not a good part of your culture. I mean, we all know that there are cultures that, that demean women. That's not good. We, we know that there are cultures with genital mutilation. That's not good. So not everything that, that falls under the rubric of culture needs to be celebrated. And, you know, we, we need to celebrate those parts of culture that are healthy and life-affirming, and we need to fight back against those parts of culture that are destroying the earth. And yet there's also, I think, the, the, the gap between culture and science has grown. There's a lot of animosity in it. And I think in a sense, because science has let us down, right? Like when we look at what science has enabled, right? So, you know, in a sense, science created COVID-19 through airplanes, through the technology of, of mass slaughterhouses. Um, science has created global warming, right? All the things that, all the technologies that have come out of it. I think there's a sense that, that science is no longer serving human culture. And so it feels like we're, we're biting the hand that has fed us in a very indiscriminate way. Well, I would say that not that science caused those problems, but economics caused those problems. And science facilitated the economic needs. So there was an economic need to create slaughterhouses. And I guess there were engineers who figured out the most efficient ways to do it. But the science is what's telling us, don't eat those dead animals that are being processed in those slaughterhouses. The science is all telling us the same thing. There, there is no science that's telling us to eat the dead animals. There's no serious science that says that, that it's good for our health. Um, you know, there are... But there's, there's a lot of non-serious science that says that. And, we, you, know, and, and you and I and Chef AJ can, can look at an article and, and follow the money trail a little bit, right? So, I, yeah, I would agree with you. I think it's sort of a capitalist imperative, but capitalism determines what science gets made. You know, I was, I was part of a team. We were trying to do a very simple, low-tech, randomized control trial showing that our program, the WellStart Health Program, was better than doing nothing for people with type 2 diabetes. We couldn't get it off the ground. We, had, we didn't have the funds to take that thing through with the you know, institutional review board, with all of the forms and the things we have to fill out. Like, science is really expensive. Yes, and, it is. And so if capitalism is fueling science, that means, you know, capitalism is putting a lot more money to try to prove that beef is good for you than to prove the opposite. Which is, which is something I get into in the book. I mean, there's this fellow, Gary Tobbs, who did something like $29 million worth of studies to try to prove that fat is good for you and just wasted $29 million, you know. Um, so, uh, but, but none of the studies are really persuasive. Uh, they just generate headlines. There was the study called the Red Meat Papers that, that came to the conclusion that we should all continue our red meat consumption. And they based that not on any new science, but what they said was, yeah, it's true that red meat consumption leads to more cancer and more heart attacks. But on the other hand, and I'm quoting here because I wouldn't want to I wouldn't want to misquote them. Quote, the desirable effects associated with reducing red meat consumption, such as uh, reduced heart disease and cancer, probably do not outweigh the undesirable effects, such as the burden of modifying cultural and personal meal preparation and eating habits. So that was a study. They, they, did, the, they did a meta-analysis of existing studies. They said, yeah, all the evidence shows that you live longer and you're healthier if you don't eat meat. But on the other hand, it's very difficult 
It's very difficult. Mm -hmm. So we're going to recommend continued red meat consumption. That's the kind of nonsensical study that the other side funds. Right. And when you, th when you think about how disrespectful that is to withhold the truth from people because you've decided what's best for them. Right. That's, yeah, that's, that's, uh, yeah. And that was, that was pub published in the Annals of Internal Medicine, a scientific mm -hmm. review. It's nonsense. Mm -hmm. right. It was published in the, the Annals of Chutzpah. Yes. <laughs> so, AJ, what, what are you working on these days? Have you, you know, for people who are watching on, on YouTube, you've got this beautiful uh, wallpaper. Uh, the yes, Chef thank AJ. you. Your, um, if, if we, um, when you, when you, you're Chef AJ now, but when you joined, you were, you were like doing summits? Like what, right, what are, yeah. What and you, you, you were actually, you're, well, yes, I thank you for asking. And that's, so I do have a YouTube show and you're scheduled actually in a few months to be a guest and it's called Chef AJ Live. And because I, for lack of a better title, I didn't know it was going to be a show, but what happened is the day the pandemic happened, I went live, I was thought I was going live to my private group and I'm not very good with technology. And I pushed a button that it went everywhere on Facebook and YouTube and people seemed to enjoy mm -hmm. it. And they enjoyed the connection, especially when the pandemic mm -hmm. first began. And it was, I started it was asking- good that, good that you were fully dressed. <laughs> actually, just from the waist up. <laughs> and actually, it's funny you say that because one time I was in a towel, just checking the technology, not knowing I was live. So there, there is actually a short little YouTube saying why, you know, why you have to make sure your camera is off if you're gonna do this kind of thing. But thankfully, I was clothed. And, and so, it, you know, I got a little bored just hearing myself talk. And this was like in March of this year. And so I asked friends if they would come on with me and, and then it just snowballed. And so I'm booked until March 22nd of next year with guests. And this is doing like one to two shows a day. And, but, but that's not my job. It's my hobby. It's my passion. But I actually do host these summits. And you were an expert last year. Well, actually, this it aired this year, but we interviewed last year called the, the Truth About Weight Loss Summit. And so I'll be doing that again. And we are doing a different one this year, also based on just GI health, because it was interesting, Howard, that when we did the Truth About Weight Loss Summit and we asked people what their obstacles were about going plant-based, one, they did say recipes, that they wanted more recipes, but they also said there's apparently a lot of people that have GI problems from here all the way down there, that they felt that eating plants either contributed to or made worse. So when people say things like that, I go look for experts and I found 40 experts to say it's exactly the opposite. It's the plants, specifically the fiber in the plants, that's going to heal your gut. And so, you know, you, you give me one little kernel and I'm, I'm going to make a summit out of it. Because I just, you know, I, I, I'm not a doctor myself, but I love interviewing doctors because they're smart and they, and, you know, especially the plant-based doctors. And I love that way of getting information out to people. Awesome. Awesome. And Glenn, what, what about you? What's, what's your next project? Oh, boy, I don't really know. Uh, you know, I'm also a playwright and a screenwriter, so I sometimes have pro projects uh, on that side of things. But I would like to uh, uh, do another book. One thing I've thought of is that um, this book uh, is the theme of it is about how to take your health into your own hands, how to, how to heal yourself rather than always relying on doctors. Right. Um, and uh, I've thought of doing another book that could be something like own your health case studies where mm. the, the stories of 10, 15, 20 individuals who have cured themselves who have taken their health into their own hands. So that's a possibility. I'm also starting a newsletter. Um, if if uh, people go to the, uh, the title of the book plus the word book, ownyourhealthbook.com is the website of the book. And on that website, you can sign up for my new health newsletter that I'm going to make a quarterly newsletter. And in that newsletter, I will tell some of those stories of people who take their health into their own hands. Mm. And, and the, the value prop of that newsletter is so like you do a lot of research, right? But you then you then present it in very uh, entertaining and digestible form for people. Yeah, well, it, it relates to what you said at the top of the podcast that when people hear the anecdotes, when they hear about individuals who get well, 
by by some personal protocol, which might simply be the plant-based diet. It might be the plant-based diet and a specific herbal supplement or whatever. I think people want to know about that. Mm. Um, you know, in, in science, um, anecdotal evidence is not considered, uh, you know, dispositive. We, they don't make scientific conclusions based on anecdotal evidence. And I, don't, and I think that's as it should be. On the other hand, that doesn't mean that anecdotal evidence is worthless. You know, uh, if you found yourself on, a, uh, on an island somewhere getting a terrible rash and uh, you met the natives and they said, oh, here's what you do for that rash. You, you put on this powder from this plant and uh, you wouldn't have a scientific study there. But if you were stranded on that island, you might very well try that powder. They're all telling you it works. Right. So um, uh, I, I, I believe that anecdotal evidence has value. It's not as uh, determinative as scientific evidence, but it has some value. Okay. So um, I've got a question I've been thinking about since the last time we talked, which I think was about four years ago. Uh, it was before the 2016 election, I think. Um, yeah. You wrote a book, a novel, about the first vegan president. Did, did Cory Booker yeah. ever get a copy of that? He did not, to my knowledge, no. Oh. Um, I was rooting for him. <laughs> I thought he was a pretty good candidate. Uh, I, I do remember, though, that in one debate, the, the word vegan came up, and he, he said, oh, I'm not... You know, I'm, that's not important or something. You know, he, he naturally had to downplay his own veganism. Mm. Mm. I still think it speaks highly of him, though. Right. Yeah, there was another, I can't even remember his name, but there was another guy, most of whose policies I wasn't a fan of, but he was, like, really sharp on lifestyle medicine issues. I can't remember. It's like a guy from, like, a congressman from Ohio, I think. It wasn't Indiana. Dennis Kuchinik, was it? No, no, him I liked. I could pinch his cheek. No, it was a guy who was, um, he was like military. He was pretty right-wing Democrat. It wasn't my cup of tea, but he was right on the money about, like, we are wasting our money on health care, and the whole Obamacare versus not debate is completely the wrong thing, and we should be treating people with lifestyle. And it's like, oh, you want a little piece of my heart. Can I tell my Dennis Kucinich story? Oh, sure. So first tell, tell who it is for everyone in the, who's listening. Yeah. Who's well, under, Dennis, Kucinich, Dennis Kucinich was a very, very left-wing congressman from Ohio, I think from the Cleveland area, uh, and a vegan. And uh, he, he ran for president in, I think it was 2004, in the Democratic primary. And I think most of us knew that he was a long, 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 long shot. Um, and, uh, you know, he had some, uh, he, you know, he was essentially uh, on the, the Bernie Sanders wing of the party, but without the following that Bernie Sanders has. Mm -hmm. So I, I met him at an event and I, uh, since I knew he was a vegan, and since I was pretty confident he wasn't seriously going to be nominated by the Democratic Party, I said to him, why don't you talk about animal agriculture and all the harm it's doing? And he said to me, you know, Glenn, I'd like to, but I'm trying to run for president. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I thought, you know, when you got a 0.1% chance, that's the time to do it. Well, you know, I mean, I don't want to, you know, this is not a political podcast, right. but um, when we look at over the last eight years, the people who have, who have um, sort of unmuzzled themselves to, to start saying the things that, they, that we thought were not acceptable in public policy uh -huh. were, were the far right, by and large. Mm -hmm. Right. All of a sudden they're saying things. We said, well, you can't say that and, and, and have a national following. Well, apparently you can. You know, it, it feels like those of us 
who are on the progressive side, who are on the side of science and health. We have been muzzling ourselves for a yeah. long time to just be acceptable, to get in to the conversation. And people are looking at us and say, you know, and they're sensing that our, our lack of integrity, like we're not, we're not going all out. I think that's a great point, Howie. I hope a lot mm -hmm. of people are considering that very seriously. Because, you know, the, we're running out of time in terms of global warming. The, the idea that we have two political parties, and I know you say it's not a political podcast, so tell me when I'm going too far. But we have one political party that denies global warming, and we have another one that talks only about carbon dioxide, and they don't talk about methane, which is coming out of both ends of the cow. You know, right. well, where's the science in that? My view is, you know, you, you, you determine, you define denialism, not by words, but by actions. Both parties are, are climate denialists, yeah. right? If I told you, hey, Glenn, your house is on fire. You're, you're the only, the room you're in is okay. It's getting warmer and maybe some plasters falling from the ceiling, but the rest of your house is on fire. And you go, yes, I believe that. I think we need to do something about that. And you sit and you keep talking to me. Right. I, I get the feeling that you're denying it just as strongly as the people who are claiming it's not on fire. Yeah. So. I'm with you. Well, on that note, um, tell, tell us about, so you got the, the book. Let's talk a little bit about the book to reinforce with the name of the book, where people can get it, the, the website. Yeah, the website again is ownyourhealthbook.com. Um, and um, there's also information on Chef AJ's website, which is chefajwebsite.com. Um, and, uh, and it's available on Amazon. All right. So chefajwebsite.com. Chef AJ was not available to you? Someone it is available, and, 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 and we do own it. It's just, <laughs> yes, it originally wasn't available, but very, very soon in the near future, my website will just be my name, chefaj.com. Okay, good. Because I was like, yeah. like, what asshole is squatting on your name? I know. Well, it was, it, believe me, that happened and it took a while to get it, to get my uh -huh. name back. But in the meantime, uh -huh. yes, it'll be very soon. But right now it's just my name plus the word website. Mm. I'll, tell, I'll finish. I'll tell you a very heartwarming story. So, you know, Josh Lajani and I wrote a book called Sick to Fit, and we wrote it before we thought about the website presence. So the only thing that was available was sick number two fit, which is not as good, right? As sick to fit, it's confusing. You've got to say the number two, and I have to move my hand in a two shape. And, and then so, and I couldn't find the person who owned sicktofit.com, except it was a blog that had like three entries. The last one was 2009. And, you know, you can go on like different registers and try to find and reach the person. I couldn't do it. And finally, I went back and I saw that the person, he had done some sort of like coaching people to prevent reverse diabetes. And I don't know the details of what he was doing, but he had some testimonials on this hidden page way deep in his website. And some of them actually had emails and phone numbers of the people he helped. And all I knew was his first name because the people would say Bob. So I contacted them and they put me in touch with Bob. And it turned, and Bob is now, um, you know, pretty much like retired up in Portland. He was like a, an elite runner. He ran a marathon in like, you know, two hours and 15 minutes in, in his heyday in the early 70s, mid 70s. And he said, oh, you're doing good work. Let me give you the domain. And like, I, I was prepared to negotiate. I, I was ready to pay thousands for it. Uh -huh. he said, oh, you're doing good work. Let me give it to you. And it's like, like we become friendly. And it's like, wow. Like, there are, you know, there's, there's good that can happen. That's a great story. So, uh, all right, well. Um, I can't see or hear you. I don't know if it's a problem on my end or if um, you just haven't enabled your audio yet. What? Whoops. Whoops. Sorry about that. Just started talking by itself. I apologize. <laughs> no worries. I can, I can cut that out. I have, I have editing chops. Okay. All right. So Glenn Mercer and Chef AJ, the book is Own Your Health. The website is ownyourhealthbook.com or amazon.com. Chefajwebsite.com, soon to be just Chef AJ. And awesome. Um, do you guys have other publicity? You know, you actually can't go and do um, talks anywhere. Or you, do you have, uh, like, what's your COVID PR strategy? Podcasts. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And just YouTube. <laughs> YouTube. Yeah. All right. 
Well, I, I look forward to the day when we can uh, hang out in person. Yeah, well, if people would stop eating dead animals, that would be easier. Yeah. All right, let's, uh, let's end it on that note. Glenn and, and, and AJ, thank you so much for all you do. Thanks for, for your work on this wonderful book. And thank you for taking the time today. Thanks, Thank you, Howard. Okay. So long, AJ. Okay. Bye. Bye. All right, that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you go out and get the book Own Your Health by Glenn Merzer with recipes by Chef AJ. And let's see what's going on. So um, we got some running news, which is on Saturday. Somehow I injured my knee. Uh, I dove three times in the in the Frisbee scrimmage and caught the disc exactly none of them. So my record is unblemished, although my legs are. And the next morning or even that afternoon, actually, I was starting to feel kind of bad in the right knee and uh, I think it might be subpatellar bursitis. So I've been uh, did six miles of walking today and uh, icing and uh, hopefully it'll be back in time for me to re-injure it again <laughs> next Saturday uh, in garden news. Um, I finally cleaned up. I was I was um, harvesting the sweet potatoes and I pulled out the potatoes and left the vines in a giant mess that sort of got rained on and started rotting. So I got those all out. We um, we mowed a little bit behind the bees. I am still too chicken to mow in front of the bees. I'm uh, hoping, you know, will be one really cold day and they'll all just want to stay inside their hives and not worry about the two stroke engine just inches away from the from the entrance to the hive. The other thing I'm doing for the garden for the bees is creating I think they're called candy boxes. And so I almost bought a table saw, which I kind of really want, although uh, all these videos on YouTube talk about how dangerous it is. But um, if I could get that table saw, I could rip uh, wood into one and three eighths inch height and um, miter it and, and nail it or, or staple it together and basically taking sugar and water, hardening it in in this frame with kind of a you know metal hardware cloth on the bottom. And then you just put that on top of the beehive just under the under the roof and the bees can live on that um, all winter. And, you know, we don't take a lot of honey from our bees. If if any this year, I don't think we took a single bit. Um, we're just trying to keep them alive um, so that they will pollinate you know, our area. They don't really go for our garden. They kind of go up and out. But I'm hoping somebody else has bees that are pollinating us and uh, one beehive washes the other. Um, other things we're doing in the garden. We got a whole bunch of beans. They finally dried on the vine and it's really beautiful to see. It's not that much, you know, like you see how how challenging it is for human beings to to get the calories they need from agriculture. Um, you know, like the whole thing might have been a mistake. Maybe we were just, you know, focused on gathering and not trying to grow things and spending all our time keeping weeds away and keeping the soil properties perfect. Um, and the other thing is I have begun again growing broccoli sprouts, trying two different kinds while I while I do research to see if there's a difference between sprouts and microgreens. Uh, the sprouts you just put in water and, um, you know, in a mason jar with a with a screen on top and let them drain and rinse them twice a day. And the microgreens you actually put into a growth medium of, of compost and uh, potting soil or something equivalent. And you actually grow them from seed into little plants and then you cut them off so that you're not eating the soil as well. So doing both of those trying to get some more of that wonderful sulforaphane into our veins. And aside from that, it looks like uh, the garden is coming to a close. The, the, the kale and lettuces that we planted in the fall did not do well, so there's not that much to speak of. All right, time for thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willridenauer.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Rickney Porter, Dominic Maurer, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Tina Scharf, Tina Ahern, Jen Filkonofsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Kelly Cameron, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franzet, Jeanette Bennett, Gila Sert, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Dorona Vizov, Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesner, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, 
Aviva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Val Lineman, Nick Harper, Bandana Chawley, Molly Levine, The Inscrutable Harry R., Susan Laverty, The Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Sharon Hirschman, Linda Ayad, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzinwa, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olikoski of Plant Power for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Morani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Ann Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Peter W. Evans, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Emily Iconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Dan Picorni, Stephen Leenan, Patty DiMartino, Mike and Donna Kartz, Deanne Bishop, Billbury Elf, Marjorie Lewis, Trisha Adams, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarit Hagen, Tracy Gulledge, Laura Heaton, Meg from Mama Says, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Paranganchi. Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt, Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught of Edible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, Danielle Roberts, Michael Lushton, Sarah Johnson, Catherine Floyd, for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for now. As always, be well, my friends. 